The image of God in this book is broken down in three parts. In the book of Revelation, we see God in three forms. He comes as the Father. He's the one. The Father is the one who is on the throne. He's called the Alpha, the Omega. We see the Son. The Son is apparent. Every time that we see the Lamb, we see the Lion, and we see the Warrior of the Lamb. And then we see the Holy Spirit at work in this book as well. And he's always kind of categorized as they're calling him the seven spirits. And it's, it's this image of where the Holy Spirit is the one who's taking the plans from the throne room of the Father, and he's taking them, and he's going to bring them and pour them out on the earth. And so we see the completion of the Spirit and the seven spirits that are at work in the Scriptures. Now, what's interesting about this in Numbers, remember, we're going to see all sorts of interesting numbers in this book. We see the three aspects, the three forms of God, but we also see these, these other three forms. If you would, we see the Trinity, and we also see the, the unholy Trinity. So what you have here, if you would, the plan of Satan to kind of combat the plan of God. We see Satan at work, and then Satan has his two minions. What we see, we see a beast who comes from the sea and a beast who comes from the land. Now, how many of you guys thought that there's only one beast? The mark of the beast, right? And we talk about, okay, there's actually two beasts, okay? That's fun, isn't it? If you guys have questions about beasts, turn that in. We'll talk about it next Sunday. And so we see that Satan even comes in this form where, again, he's this, 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 uh, this trio, if you would, of the forces of evil on the earth. Now, we see a bunch of sevens in this book. The seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Um, we could spend an entire week on each of these sevens, but kind of summarize what we have here. The seven letters... It, it's the complete counsel of God. The seven letters are the way that God is coming to encourage his witnesses. He's come to encourage Christians, the church. He's telling them, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you need to know to be built up, to be prepared. These are words of preparation. Brace yourself. That's what the, these letters are all about. And then you've got the seven, uh, what have we got? The seven seals. And these seals are, are kind of a beautiful part of the book. The seals, if you would, are the images of how God is going to his plans on the earth. How is God going to, to fulfill all the promises of all of history? And also, how is God going to seal? How is he going to keep protected and safe those things that matter most to him? So the seals, if you would, are the plan of God on the earth, how God is going to make all things right. And then you get to the fun stuff. Seven trumpets and seven bowls. Have, have you guys ever heard of any sermons about the seven trumpets and the seven bowls? No. Come on now. I'm sure some, oh, yes, there we go. Amen. Yes, I have. I heard about them sevens. <laughs> and so what happens with the seven trumpets, you also get the four horsemen. Have you heard about the four horsemen? The four horse. yeah, there we go. Horsemen of the, yeah, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? How the world is going to end. It's going to end with four dudes on horses. Okay. Uh well, surely those aren't horses. Those would be like helicopters or something nowadays, you know. That was really trippy. I wasn't sure that was my phone or someone else's. If you haven't noticed, this room is very echoey, so it kind of bounces everywhere. And so uh, in this image, we see the trumpets and the bowls. And uh, if you would, the really cool thing about the image with the trumpets is what you see that's taking place is this response where the first thing we see um, if you would, moving God. We see the prayers of the saints, the incense, the censers. We see this thing where it's as if all the prayers of the saints from all of time is beginning to, 
to fill the nostrils of God, if you would. It's this image where the prayers of the saints are touching God. They are moving God. And so you see this image where this cry for justice, this cry for, for God to make things right, is beginning to fill God. He's beginning to be moved by it. And so what comes before the judgments, uh, what comes before the trumpet judgments of God, what comes before the bowls of, of his wrath is the prayers of the saints. And it's a powerful image because we see that what's taking place in all this is that we see that what is filling God is this cry for justice, that things on the earth would be made right. And I think it's something that most of us should be able to connect to. It's that... Oh, God, if you love me, then why? Have you guys ever been in that place before? If you love me, then why this? And it's, these, it's this cry, it's this, this kind of a surge from the prayers in the hearts of the saints that actually begins to move God. And, and the way it moves God, it moves God into these seven trumpet blasts. And what the trumpet blasts are, if you would, it's, it, it's this image of God in a way that's contrary to what we've seen before in the Old Testament, what we see with the trumpet blast, it's a way of saying that these things are moving God with such force that when God begins to move against this, the evil and the death and the sin on the earth, the way that he is going to move is with such force. These proclamations have such power and seriousness to them. He's not going to whisper these things with a harp. He's going to proclaim them and yell them with the force of a trumpet. Do you kind of get the imagery here? Again, we, we talked about the song of the Lamb. It's not this song that's going to be sung uh, gently or quietly. The way that God feels towards this evil on the earth, the way God feels towards rape and murder and lust and greed, He is going to speak out with force against these things. And so uh, as He begins to make these judgments, these proclamations of the trumpet, we also see that what, what comes, if you would, in these waves what comes is these, not just his judgments, but also what comes is his responses to these things. And so we see the bowls of wrath poured out. All right. That was a quick summary to all the images. Fun? Okay. Here are the two images I want you to fix your, uh, your gaze on this morning. Okay. The two images, uh, two images which kind of conclude here, if you would, um, we're looking at from chapter 6 to chapter 20. There's a lot that happens from chapter 6 to chapter 20. But the way it concludes... It concludes in chapters 18 through 20 with these two images. One, the whore of Babylon. Isn't that just fun to say? And you're allowed to say it this morning, okay? It's in the Bible. The whore of Babylon and the bride of Christ. Now, I want you guys to see the symbols. I want you guys to see the way that the Apostle John is writing this to where there's this and there's this. It's always this... Uh, this balancing act. Here is what God is going to do. Here's what Satan is going to do. Here's what God is after on the earth. Here's what Satan is after on the earth. Here's how God is going to defeat his enemies, the slaughtered lamb. Here's how Satan is going to defeat his, the dragon who kills, devours, and pillages. Okay? Here is those who are faithful to Satan, the whore of Babylon. Okay? Here's those who are going to be faithful to Christ. Okay? The bride of Christ. Here are those who live and follow the way of Satan, those who have the mark of the beast on the forehead, and here are those who are going to follow the way of the lamb, those who have the mark of the lamb on the forehead, and those who move, be moved by the Spirit according to the song of the lamb. There's so much of this going on, and again, 
this is not a book about Satan. This is a book about how God is going to make things right. Now, you know, I'm trying to do us a little bit of a favor to kind of unload all this information on the front side of it. But if you would just kind of regroup with me here. From chapter 6 to 20, there's a lot of scary stuff. Who has read this at all? I mean, anybody? Okay. Uh, famine, war, rape, boils. I mean, plague and locusts. I mean, it's, it's in earthquakes and the seas, and it's a little scary. Agreed? Okay, no, it, it sounds great, right? Man, it sounds like a great vacation spot. Man, take me to Armageddon. Can't wait. Come on. But if you enter into these judgments, if you're seeing it this way, if you are fixated on the beast, the beasts, if you are fixated on Satan, if you are seeing this play out as the way that God is going to just wipe the earth clean, the way that he is, he is, he is done with this planet, he's done with us, and Satan has freedom to just kind of destroy things, if you see this as the end, then as you read these judgments, as you read this kind of scary story play out, you will be filled with fear. But if you understand that this book is not the revelation of Satan, this book is John's apocalypse, his revelation, the image of Christ coming clear to him. If you realize that what's fixated here is not the power of Satan, but the power of God. What's fixated here is not the plans of Satan, but the plans of Christ. If you Fix your eyes on the right image, on Christ. Then what you're seeing in chapters 6 through 20 is not the way that Satan is going to just kind of ravage the earth. What you're seeing is the way that God is coming to make things right. Now, here's a test for you to kind of see how you're fixing your eyes as you read this. When you think of the word judgment, what pops up into your head? What kind of images, what kind of feelings or, or thoughts kind of pop into your head? When you hear the word judgment, now obviously I won't have you say anything. We're just going to assume it's in your head, right? You got that picture, those feelings, yeah? You're thinking, ooh, I just can't wait to get to the buffet. Okay. It's going to be a good Sunday. We're going to have fun, yeah. If the way that you responded, when you think of judgments, you're thinking of being in trouble. If you are thinking of, because I did this bad, here is the consequence for that bad. If you are thinking of, here comes God, if you would, with his giant paddle to spank the earth in one blow, just whoop. There we go. We got something, you know. You can tell who's visual in the room, right? Like, everyone is visual. Oh, I can see it, you know. Everyone is not. Like, that's stupid. Why would he say that? See, it's hard for us because, you know, we're not Jewish, but we have to kind of try to be sometimes to get these images. And, you know, in the Old Testament, the word judgment is something used all the time, and it's not only used against Israel. Often, the word judgment is filling up their prayers. They are crying out for this. They're saying, we want judgment. And if you begin to read in the book of Revelation, what is bringing God to move in judgment is that his people are the ones crying out for judgment. Because in the scriptures, you have to understand this, justice and judgment always go hand in hand. 
Justice and judgment. Meaning, for God to make all things right, He has to come and judge and say, this is good and this is bad. This belongs and this does not belong. You have to understand that this book ends with God's final judgment on something called death. And his judgment is this. He says, death, you don't belong anymore. Pain, you don't belong anymore. Lust, you don't belong. Jealousy and hatred, murder and violence, you don't belong anymore. The fundamental understanding of judgment that we have to get to is that when God moves in judgment, God is moving to restore things to the way they always should have been. He is coming to make things right. And if you get this image as you read, it begins to kind of, it all makes more sense. It all begins to fit better. But don't let me kind of fool you there. I'm not telling you to take the judgments lightly. This is not what we're supposed to do. One of the ways that this book is supposed to kind of stir the church to be faithful to Christ is it's supposed to shake them a little bit. This book should be a little bit raw for you. It should cause you a little bit to say, what in the world is happening here? Why would God be moved to do these things? And so it does have an element, if you would, that's trying to push us. But the major two themes that the major two characters that are kind of focusing on in all this is, again, is this entire thing, these judgments and the trumpets and the bowls, this entire story that's playing out, it's all about the end images. It's all about who is part of the whore of Babylon and who is part of the bride of Christ. We have to find this out. Who is going to stay faithful to Christ? Who is going to sell themselves out to Satan? So this morning, the fun question I get to ask you is, who are you? The bride of Christ or the whore of Babylon? Oh, amen. Wasn't that fun? I have to soak it up because I can't say this next Sunday. If I say it next Sunday, you're like, oh, see, he's just just playing with us. The only Sunday I get to say that. So here we go. So as we go into this, the, you know, the major thing that, that we have to kind of embrace, we have to embrace the judgment. Judgment is part of this book, and we have to kind of allow it to kind of hit us, if you would. Now, in, the, in this book, there are two major forms of judgment which are kind of playing out on the earth. Now, the first form of judgment, which is still from God, is, if you would, indirect judgment. Uh, it's almost to say the consequences, the outflow that comes from aligning yourself with Satan. And so the first thing that we see is that this whore of Babylon, she is the image of what the world looks like when Satan is king, or prince, if you will, the the way the Scriptures put it. When Satan is in control, when a person, a family, a system, a nation, a company, blah, 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 when they choose to come underneath the kingship or the princeship of Satan, when they choose to, to follow in his ways... When they choose to take upon themselves the mark of the beast, which means when they choose to live in this world in a way in accordance with the way that the beast does his work. When they choose to live this life in the way to where the beast chooses to conquer its enemies through death and through violence and through war, through lust and coercion and greed and jealousy, whenever we choose to function under this way of living, okay, the whore of Babylon is the picture of what the world looks like 
when this is how we live. We sell ourselves out. We prostitute ourselves out for what we can gain by living this way. See, what you have to understand is this. You will not be able to operate in the highest levels of power and authority on this earth in these systems if you live the way of Christ. If you notice, Christ did not take the throne of Rome. He didn't take any throne of this earth. To operate in the way of Christ always means that you will come into contradiction with the way of Satan. And until his grip is released from this world, you will always be going against the flow. And so what takes place here, the whore of Babylon is this this image of the way that we are able to gain success and power, influence, money, anything and everything that we want, we can have it if we would just sell our souls, if we would just prostitute ourselves out to Satan. If we would just allow ourselves to compromise on what it means to follow Christ. Now, all this language might sound foreign to you, but we have to remember the Gospels are full of a message of the kingdom of God. The synoptics and the Gospel of John, they're all full of this language where Jesus is always speaking about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And as he speaks about the kingdom, he talks about who is king in that kingdom. And his parables are always playing these things out. He's always saying, if you choose to come underneath this king, then to live in the kingdom way means to do things the way the king does them. And the way the king does them is not the way that this world does things. And so everything comes back to this fundamental issue of where is your allegiance? If you notice the Apostle Paul, when he's kind of summarizing how we enter into, to, if you would, the eternal life with God, he says, if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that I would come underneath His way of doing things, that I would, again, the way that the Apostle John says it, if I would follow in the way of the Lamb, if I would take the Lamb's mark upon my head, And so the fundamental question of this book, it comes down to these two images. The whore of Babylon, are you going to be a part of the world who sells sells itself to Satan? Because in these images, it's the whore of Babylon who controls the earth. It's her who controls the kingdoms and the kings and the wealth and the armies and the power. And see, it's them who have the upper hand. And they are attacking and they are killing and they they are... persecuting those who follow the Lamb. How are we doing? Are we hanging in here? It's a lot of work for us to get our heads into being a first century Jew, isn't it? Because we're just not Jewish, and we're just not from the first century, right? So if you tell me four horsemen are going to take the earth, I'm having a hard time picturing anyone who's not Amish or a cowboy. See? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Mercy. <laughs> For Amish, you're going to conquer the earth. Okay. And so what's going on here, again, these are the two prominent images. The question which the Apostle John asks us in the first chapter, uh, as he goes through the seven letters to the churches, the question is always asking, who will be faithful? And the reason that I want to kind of linger here a little bit for us, is because we have to understand that this letter is being written not to the world. This, this letter, the, the apocalypse, is not being written to warn the world of the judgment of God. 
This is being written to the church. It's saying, who of you who right now think you are on the inside? Everyone here who hears my voice, you think you're on the inside. You think that you have the mark of the Lamb. You think that you are faithful to Jesus right now. But that's going to be tested. And the question is, are you going to stay faithful? Are you, who is the church right now, are you going to be part of the bride at the end? And at the end of the book, the way it sees the bride, it says, and the bride has prepared herself. And it talks about the purity of the bride and the white gown and how she's, she's washed herself. It's an image of the people who have made it through all the tribulations. They are the ones who have prepared themselves for Christ. But if the ones at the end are the ones who prepared and made it, then what happened to the ones who didn't make it? Now, theologically, I have to be honest and tell you, there's a whole lot of this stuff that's going on historically. There's a whole lot of these images and, and the 666 and Romans involved in lots of this. And, and so I have to say that there's a lot of this book that, that it does correlate to historical events. But the themes of this book are eternal. And that's what we're talking about this morning. The question still remains for us. We all think that we're following Christ. We all think that we're Christians and we sang the song and all that good stuff. But the question is not about who went to church, who said the prayer. The question is who remained faithful and followed the way of the Lamb. Those who are faithful to follow the form of Christ. Those who imitated Jesus. Not who, the book well, it does say those who sang, but it's not talking about singing. It's not about those who sang Christian songs. Amen, right? It's not about those who tithe to churches, but you are blessed if you do. Amen. Okay. Come on, loosen up a little bit. Okay. It's not about those who acted and spoke like Christians. It's about those who acted and spoke and lived like Christ. Not like charismatics or Southern Baptists or Pentecostals or Presbyterians, those who followed the way of the slaughtered lamb. Those are the only ones who make it to the end. And the verse we love to talk about, those who overcame, they did it by what? The blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and what? And they did not love their lives unto death. They were willing to follow the way of the lamb all the way to the end. These are those who make it to the end. And so the testing, what, if you would, the testing that takes place on the earth, these, these things that, again, theologically, some of these things have happened historically, but the themes are consistent. There is the first testing of our faith is the indirect judgment of God. It is, it's what happens in the world, in systems, in nations, in families, in people when they align themselves with Satan. When we allow ourselves to take the route of Satan. We'll say this. When we choose to embrace sin, it sounds a little bit more familiar for us, okay? But the Apostle Paul sees this as, I mean, uh, John, he sees this as faithfulness to Satan. When we choose to hold the hand of Satan in life, when we are willing to live our life self, selfishly, greed and anger and offense, ambition, pride, lust, when we hold the hand of Satan, when we embrace sin, there are the indirect judgments of God, meaning what happens in our life, what happens in a system, in a world that holds that hand of Satan, what comes out of that is death. What comes out of that is destruction. It destroys everything in your life. 
The first consequence of sin is not going to hell. It is your life falls apart. Everything you touch begins to die. The worst, part of thing, the worst thing about sin is that it doesn't just stay with you. It goes to your marriage, to your friendships, to your children. It goes to your office place. It goes everywhere, and it begins to spread death everywhere it goes. This is the first judgment of God against sin, against allegiance with Satan. Now, the second one is the direct judgment of God. And this is the one, if you would, that we are waiting for. It hasn't quite come to pass. It's kind of, it's symbolized in the white throne judgment. Uh, We see, I think around chapters 20 or 21, around, I think 20. And it's symbolic of the moment when God is going to put an end to this sin. And so his judgment is that anything that is faithfulness to Satan, anything that is put self first, anything that is willing to hurt someone, to abuse someone, to put someone down, anything that leads to death, to perversion, to rape, to harm, to stealing, anything that is going to cause harm to another, these things, things that John calls evil, things that we see in the beast and Satan, anything that is not the way of Christ, it has to have a final judgment, meaning it has to have an end. Now, the tricky thing about this series is we call it, um, we called it How It Ends. If you notice, I didn't say how it all ends. Because the trick about this series is what is it that finds an end? Because most of us view this book and the apocalypse as the end of all things, right? I mean, like, would you not just kind of say the natural way you think about it is it's how everything ends, right? We say, well, that's how the world ends, truth is the world isn't going to end. Not everything is going to end, but something and someone's find an end. And so the question about God's direct judgment is what things will find their, their complete end? What things will cease to exist in God's world? And this judgment is something that's supposed to kind of, if you would, be, uh, be a wake-up call for us as well. Because the encouraging part we do know is that, again, Satan and his forces and sin and death and harm, all these things find an end, which is something to encourage us. But we also see that everyone who aligns himself with Satan finds an end as well. And I think that's the sobering part. Because even in this, what's so tricky is that those who are hearing this letter are already part of the church. They've already been baptized. They've already, you know, had their confession to Christ. But even some of these are ones who will not make it to the end. And that's the part that has to bother us a little bit. And the reason for this is because we have to understand what's coming after this. What's so interesting about uh, this book is that we often read this book as if it's the last act of God. Here's the end of the book. Here's how the chapter closes. It's over now. The apocalypse, it's done. But this is not the end, is it? This is actually preparation. What's so powerful about this book is that the revelation of Christ is the revelation of how God is going to make his second to last act. His second to last act is to wipe it clean of everything that brings evil and harm to this world. But his last act is to restore it, to make it new again. And the reason that those, the reason that there are people, humans, children of God, 
who do not make it. It's because when they align themselves with Christ, they become a source of harm and abuse and rape and stealing and murder. They become a source that is contrary to the nature of God and contrary to what the world of God is going to look like. When he comes and makes all things new again, which the the phrase there is the new heavens and new earth, these things can have no place. And so the choice for us is very simple. Are we going to choose to be made whole and made new again, to be a part of what God is doing for eternity, or are we going to choose not to be a part of that and to be a part, if you would, of the old creation? Harming, hurting, pulling. And this is the sobering part for us. So what happens in this is, there's also this one last part to the judgments. The judgments of God are supposed to wake up the saints of God. What's so tricky about this is that his hearers, and even us this morning, we think, again, that we are part of the kingdom. We think that we are following the way of the Lamb. And the whole tricky part about this letter and the, part, the way it hits us this morning is that many of us have already sold our souls out to Satan. We are already living in this pattern that is contrary to the way of the Lamb. And it is trying to warn us. This cannot continue. And this is supposed to wake us up. It should, it should stir us up, if you would, to disavow, to, to distance ourselves from the way of Satan, the way of the beast, that we would not live in that way anymore. Again, this, this kind of goes back to last week's sermon. But that we would choose to distance ourselves, that we would choose to protest this way of living by following the Lamb, and that we would also allow this to wake us up, to stir us to prayer. I think that's one of the hardest things for us to embrace is a seriousness towards prayer. But over and over again in this book, there is this image of how the cries of the saints, and this is not just praying. This is not just us you know, um, having prayer meetings. The incense of the saints is not just a prayer. It is when we come alive and we realize the injustice and we align ourselves with God and say, what's happening here cannot continue. It's whenever we look at Ferguson. You guys remember that whole thing that broke out, and we, we took an entire Sunday to talk about it. It's when the church says, this is not okay. And we cry out and say, God, make this right. And what's even harder is this, that for the churches who are getting these letters are churches who live in very comfortable situations. They had all the money that they needed. They were not being persecuted yet. No one had died yet. And they're hearing how other churches are poor, how these other churches are being attacked, how these other churches have even lost people who have been murdered for the faith, and they haven't been there yet. That's us. And so we hear about what's happening in Syria. We hear about, you know, what's going on in the ghettos, and it, and it doesn't really touch us yet. And the challenge of this is that even though we aren't there, this is supposed to allow us to hear what the Spirit is saying, which is what the Apostle John says over and over again. Do you hear what the Spirit is saying, and it should move us to cry out for justice. We should be the ones who are calling God to return because we can't stand to see this injustice happen any longer. And the hardest thing for everyone in this room right now is this is so far away from us. This is supposed to wake us up to cry out for God to return. Now, here's just two big things that as we end this morning on yet. I want us to carry these out. These are the things I want to stick out to us the most. And again, it's this. 
It's important for us to understand that this is not God's last act on the earth. This is not where it all ends. This is God's last act of preparation before new creation. This is where evil and sin and justice and death find their end. So, chapter 6 through 20 is about judgment, but it's also about hope. If we are able to see the big picture, if we're able to see what God is doing, we should be people who rejoice in song. Now, that, 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 that sounds kind of cheesy. It's like a musical, right? We should like burst out and dancing and singing, right? Which is what happens, of course, you know, in the book. And the song that the saints are singing, uh, the passage that we started with this morning in chapter 19, uh, it says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute. And everyone says, ah. Okay. Who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. And then it goes on to talk about her you know, she's burning, and the, her smell of her burning flesh is just so exciting to all of us. <laughs> right? Yes, she's burning. Hallelujah. Picture this, um, if you would. When we hear this, what's, again, what's, what this is supposed to do, this is supposed to immerse us in a world. So if I were a family who was in a, one of the areas that was having persecution, and if I had just watched my child be murdered for Christ, I am seeing an image of a world where my children would never have to die, ever. I am seeing a world that's free of cancer. I am seeing a world where I will be united with loved ones I've lost. I'm seeing a world to where my family and kids will never know what it is to lack for anything. I'm seeing a world to where my kids won't have to cry, where we will be filled with joy and hope. I am seeing, if you go, I'm being immersed in the idea that I and my family and the people I love get to be a part of a place that's without all of the evil and the darkness that I've experienced. And so when we sing because the prostitute is, burnt, is burning, we are, we, are, we are so excited that our family, our kids, we get to spend life without end in a place that doesn't have the brokenness and the corruption and the fear and the death and the murder and the violence that this world has. And that is why we are so excited and we have this song of praise that's in our mouths because we can see it. Because John is painting this picture that's, that's washing over us. If we can just hold on, if we can just live this life, the 50 years, 70 years, 100 years that we have in this life, if we can just live following the way of Jesus, selflessly, suffering, loving, being gentle, following in his example, if we can just make it through this life, then I will have a thousand, ten thousand, a million, a life with no end with the people I love the most in a place that doesn't have the evil and the darkness that I've tasted in this world. That's why we say, hallelujah. Praise God. Would you guys stand with me this morning? So again here, I'm kind of end here at the last part of that passage there in chapter 19, verse 7, it says, So let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And so you start there in the first chapter, and again, there's 
celebration that the whore of Babylon is burning and all this kind of stuff. It's hard to say that seriously, isn't it? It should be at least. And then at the end of it, you know, you have this, this image. Hey, that world is burning. It's going away. And the ones who are here, the bride, they have made themselves ready. And so the part that should hit us this morning is again, am I being faithful to Christ? Am I living my life with the mark of the Lamb? Am I living my life in a way that imitates the Lamb that was slain, a God who loved so deeply that He would give His life before He took a life, that He would do this life, this sacrificial form of life? Am I living this way? Because I want to be faithful, because I want to be someone who makes the end. I want myself and my family and the loved ones I have to live a life with no end in a place that is not marred with the nastiness that I've come to experience. This is the challenge this morning. So Father, we just come to you this morning. We love you. And there's so much imagery, it's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the great teacher, uh, that it's, it's your role to, to make clear to us what you have shared uh, through your son. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help these images to sink in, that even if it's just like seeds have been sown this morning, we ask that these images and this, this image of a new world that's been washed clean of evil and sin and perversion and pain and murder, that it would be, it would move us, it would grip us.